Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you haven't noticed, there's a bit of a scheduling uh, reversal this week. Uh, that's just one of the things that happens every now and then these uh, these days. So I think this is the listener mail episode that would normally go in the Monday slot. You're going to be hearing it on a Tuesday, but uh, but we'll be back with our regular core episodes on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Okay, housekeeping done. Uh, Rob, are you ready to jump into the mailbag? Let's do it. Okay, maybe I should start with this message from Eric about the artifact on the sugar light. Eric says, good morning, gentlemen. Here I am to bug you again. Eric, I I can't remember what you bugged us about in the past, but I'll take your word for it. Eric says, why in movies, cartoons, anime, etc., are radiation and nuclear reactors always portrayed as having a green glow? Cherenkov radiation typically produces a blue glow. Eric. Uh, and that's the whole question. I think this is really good because when you see uh, uh, see like uh, radioactive waste or stuff at the nuclear plant on The Simpsons, it's always green, right? But if you actually look at the glow emanating from, say, the water, the cooling water around a nuclear reactor, there is a glow, but it is blue. It's that blue Cherenkov light. Uh, but I do think I have a good guess about where the green glow thing comes from. And this actually, I think, briefly came up in our episodes about halo imagery, unless I'm mistaken. But uh, but this is my best guess. I think it is probably based on the history of radioluminescent paint. Uh, so in the early 20th century, you had these famous paints, like Undark was the trade name of one of them, but there were a number of uh, radioluminescent paints. Undark was made by the U.S. Radium Corporation, and uh, radioluminescent paint had to have a few ingredients to work. One was a radioactive element, typically radium, and then there would also be a chemical in the paint called a phosphor, which means a chemical that glows in the presence of radiation. Uh, so the radium irradiates the phosphor, and then the phosphor emits light in response. And I think uh, specifically in the Undark paint, they use zinc sulfide as the phosphor, along with a bit of copper content, which I believe helped give the light a green color. So I'm not sure, but my best guess is that popular consciousness of green glowing radium paint turned into a natural association between ionizing radiation and the color green. Hmm. Though I can't help but wonder if... If another at least small factor in this is the the idea in some cultures, uh, particularly some European cultures, that green was the color of um, of like the fairy folk of people from beyond. It's oh, like wow. a, a you know a, a potent supernatural otherworldly uh, color to have about your person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Going way back to our episode about Ginny Green Teeth, it reminds mm-hmm. me of that old, like, superstition we read about. And there, there was some, like, catalog of folk tales from old, uh, from the British Isles. And one of them was about, a, like, a mother in law telling the daughter in law never to wear a green dress because it would draw the ire of the fairies. Yeah. And I have to say, even today, if you were to see somebody wearing all bright green walking down the street, I mean, it would, it would catch your attention. You might, you might wonder what was going on there. You might wonder if you're about to get pinched. Yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from D. Hi there. 
I was both horrified and amused to realize, whilst listening to your recent podcast, The Waiting, that no mention was made of England. <laughs> Smiley face. Instead, we were subjected to a whole one minute and 22 seconds of waiting in line during the French Revolution. Shudders. Smiley face. Here in Blighty, which uh, I am told means England, queuing, as it is properly called, is rightly considered a national pastime. As George Mikes rightly observed, quote, an Englishman, even if he is alone, forms an orderly queue of one. (laughs) Joking aside, I have direct experience on this. Alone at a bus stop or at the bank, I'll unconsciously orient myself as if I'm the first in an imperceptible queue. You can't possibly complete two episodes on waiting without uh, recourse to mentioning the religious fervor with which queuing is regarded and beaten into children from a young age in England. I trust and expect that this honest oversight is corrected in your second episode, your devoted fan from England, D. D, I guess we couldn't read them out loud, but this email has a higher than average quotient of uh, like uh, ASCII winking smiley faces and stuff. So I'm assuming you're not as mad as you claim. (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, and I think he, he backed this up with a couple of subsequent uh, emails. But, but uh, D, fear not. We shall be covering English queuing in queuing part two. Uh, I already have a, a bunch of stuff about it in the document uh, for when we record that episode. All right. This next message comes from Adam. Adam says, hello. I love this episode, uh, again referring to uh, queuing, and it made me think of a bit in Mark Maron's most recent stand-up special, End Times Fun. He talks specifically about how it used to feel to wait in line without a phone. He describes the emptiness and boredom of eating a sandwich alone on your lunch break or just waiting to take another step forward in line while peeking over to the side to see what's going on up ahead. There's a similar compulsion in an elevator, and it feels like you're the weird one if you don't have your phone out. Just wondering uh, your thoughts on how cell phones have changed the dynamic and psychology of how we wait. Thanks, Adam. Uh, Oh, totally, Adam. I mean, they've changed many things about our lives, and this is one big part of them. I think for people who have phones, there's probably much less boredom in general in your life uh, than there would have been, you know, before before people had mobile phones with access to the Internet. But that might be sort of compensated with a proportional increase in the amount of anxiety. Yeah, you're maybe doing less soul crushing just just experiencing less soul-crushing boredom as you wait in line. But if you're alleviating that by engaging in, say, soul-crushing social media use or, um, I don't know, I mean, some games are good, but some games, uh, cell phone games, can feel a little... Uh, um, yeah, mind numbing, and uh, mm-hmm. and certainly I think there's some uh, there's some models of 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 mobile gaming out there that are perhaps not uh, the the most honest <laughs> in the way they go after you. You know, a lot of uh, you know hidden costs, and also you might have mixed feelings about your engagement with that. Uh, Rob, I, I wonder what you think about his other thing about how you're the weird one if you don't have your phone out. I have absolutely felt this pressure before. To I felt pressure to do stuff on my phone in public, not because I didn't want to be bored, but because there's some kind of threat of awkwardness. There's kind of a mm. looming, I don't know, uh, social threat from other people that like they might perceive you as being creepy or something if you're not keeping your eyes down on your phone. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when phones come out, there is this sense that 
who, whatever they're doing, they are engaged. They may be engaged socially with somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they may be texting their significant other or something, or they're doing work, or it, you get the they, they are working on something. Uh, even even if they're playing a game, it's interesting how I think before the the rampant use of smartphones, if you were seen playing a Game Boy in public and you were, you know, perhaps not a child, there would be, I don't know if it would be, you know, looked down upon, but I think it would have a different energy. Whereas today, mm-hmm. yeah, you just, you pull your phone out. If there's some level of social awkwardness, you pull out your phone. If it's, uh, one thing I've noticed, I, I myself have done this, if I'm dining alone, mm-hmm. um, which I never really had a problem with before, I would, you know, occasionally I would, I would do it and I'd often like bring a book and, mm-hmm. and by bringing a book, I felt like, well, I have something to do if I get bored, but also I have a purpose here. Like this is my my thing that I'm doing whilst I dine, and um, and pulling out a phone can have the same. It seems like it has the same level of like social signaling. It's like I am not alone here. I am fully mm-hmm. engaged whilst eating uh, by myself in this booth. You just have the feeling that if you didn't have your phone out and you weren't or a book or something, you know, if you're mm-hmm. just sitting there just kind of looking around and not doing anything in particular. You wonder if other people are looking at you being like, geez, what's that guy's deal? Yeah. No, it, uh, I mean, I, I think my use of, of the smartphone, it definitely makes some weights a lot easier. I have like one game in particular that I'll come back to that, uh, that, that engages my mind and has a certain level of strategy to it. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I I pretty much only play it when I'm suddenly in a situation where I'm waiting and I can't work on anything else, you know. Uh, so I ultimately I would say yes, smartphones have been a great tool against the the enemy of waiting. Is it Monument Valley? No, it's uh, it's actually a game called Nurashima Hex. It's a Polish anti- uh, uh, post apocalyptic uh, like little battle game, but it's um, oh. it's hex based. It's grid based. You know, it's like a grid of hexes, and oh, okay. um, each each army has a different strategy. And uh, yeah, I find it I find it very engaging when I play it. It'll you know suck me right in, um, which is interesting. The uh, when we're talking about waiting and video games, that will actually come into play in the second episode of yeah. the waiting uh, series that we're doing. All right, you want to do this next message from Richard? Sure, Richard writes. Hi, guys. Really enjoyed your last episode on queuing this week. It reminded me of two things I have learned about queuing in the past. I remember an interesting BBC article on a study by a Danish researcher who found that actually the most efficient way of queuing is actually last person to join a queue gets served first. It encourages people to stagger their arrival times at a queue as not to end up too early, although I suspect it may not be very practical in the real world. Here is a link to the article. They include a link to the article. Also, I am reminded of a holiday to Portugal a few years back when I discovered that there is a law in Portugal that dictates that if you have a baby or small child, you are allowed to go uh, to the front of any queue there. Unfortunately, I did not have any kids with me at the time, but next time I am in Portugal, I look forward to holding my baby aloft and floating to the front of any queue. Thanks for all the interesting shows, guys. Richard. Now, it, it is interesting how a young child can definitely get you to the front of a line at times. I've encountered this while traveling, especially when my son was was younger. 
And, and and especially if he happened to get upset, there was one time we were traveling with another couple that had a, a child just a little bit younger, and they the two of them had some sort of like spat, and then they both were crying, and we immediately got to the front of the line. I, th- I think we, I forget what what airport we were at. Um, it may have been it may have been in a different country too. So, but I, I don't remember the details offhand. But uh, but it, I, I wonder Ooh. if we get into different cultural. Uh, ideas about the about standing in line and about queuing like does the the crying infant automatically get you to the front of the line or is that an unfair advantage well i mean it seems like that's sort of in everybody's interest right because the nobody wants to be hanging around with the crying children while they're waiting the whole time uh but also man that sets up that sets up some bad incentives right (laughs) it teaches the children (laughs) you mean you you might train them to to weep so that you can go to the front of the line huh well, this reminds me, we were talking about this um, uh, before the podcast episode, uh, the, the fabulous actor uh, Brad Dorif can allegedly cry on cue uh, oh, for yes. acting purposes. Uh-huh. I wonder if actors with that ability, if they, if, if, does it work if an adult is weeping uncontrollably? Or is that more of a let's get this person out of the line and, and have somebody interview them type situation? I don't know. Brad Dorif only waits in line in character as Grima Wormtongue. <laughs> Okay, this next message comes from Maya. Maya says, Hi guys, thanks for an awesome podcast and so on. About standing in line and the amount of people behind you. I recently had the very opposite experience. I think this is referring to in the episode we talked about uh, seeing people accumulate behind you in line can be pleasurable, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. it's, it produces this feeling that like you have made progress and, and also that the thing you want is in high demand. Yeah, it enhance, it's been shown, at least in some studies, to, to enhance the value of the thing you're waiting in line for. Yeah. Maya goes on, I was waiting in line to get my first vaccine dose. Long live science. Knowing that there were just 300 doses available that day and a first come first serve scenario, I realized that there were just about 20 people behind me in line uh, because after that people were turned away due to capacity. Uh, As I realized that, my gratitude and all the positive feelings went through the roof. This is, of course, anecdotal, but I do believe you didn't mention the scenario of first-come, first-serve and finite resources. Again, thank you and greetings from Sweden, Maya. Well, thanks, Maya. Yeah, this is an interesting point, uh, though this is complicated by the fact of, like, seeing just 20 people in, in line behind you paired with the knowledge that at a certain point they cut off new people getting in line because they're, you know, that's the maximum capacity they have to give away. Uh, that, that like adds on another level because there's like, you are imagining an invisible line farther beyond that. And you don't even know how far back that line goes. And paired with the fact that like, uh, th- that at least to you, like the, the value of the thing you're getting is not really in question. Like, you know, that being vaccinated is very valuable. It's not like a consumer product where you're going to get home and be like, eh, do I like this or not? I don't know. You know, the, where you got to make up your mind about it. Speaking of, of that valuable vaccine, uh, if you are able to get it, please go get your vaccine. Yes. Tying into Maya's comment about uh, finite resources, like if the vaccine is available to you, you, you are in a very lucky position right now. Yes, please get it. All right, here is another one. This one uh, comes to us from Rory. Rory writes, 
Hey, gentlemen, I've been listening for years. First time writing. Keep up the good work. Upon listening to your first episode on waiting and cues, you discussed it, but I instantly thought of traffic as waiting in line. I think the reason that traffic came to mind so quickly is my perspective as an avid motorcycle rider. And as a motorcycle rider, I think all riders will tell you we see traffic a little differently than the typical car driver. Maybe it is because we are out in the open with our feet on the ground, but sometimes it really feels like being in line when stuck in traffic. It made me think of the motorcyclist equivalent to the fast pass, lane filtering. I live in Texas, where lane filtering is illegal, but lane filtering is the act of a motorcycle filtering through slow-moving stop traffic by going between cars and lanes, typically no faster than 10 to 15 miles per hour uh, than traffic. It is legal in California and I think recently was made legal in Utah. Lane filtering is not to be confused with lane splitting, which is the dangerous behavior of when the motorcyclist disregards law and safety by cutting through traffic at high speeds with no regard for the speed in relation to traffic. I hope for a day when lane filtering is legal. It improves traffic by basically removing the motorcycles from the equation of traffic and safely pushes them to the front. But you could see where this could create a problem. Not with the actual act of riding slowly between cars through traffic or to the front of a red stoplight, but more with the subsequent road rage from people who feel like motorcyclists are jumping the line, quote-unquote, and not waiting their turn. That sense of injustice might be too much for some to bear and sadly lead to violence. From what I hear, California has had the law in place long enough to where it is proper driving adequate to let motorcycles pass in peace and maybe even move over a little for them. But I know that even if made legal in Texas, the territorial nature of drivers here would put the lane filter in danger from cars blocking paths or even people opening their car doors to prevent lane filtering from happening, at least until everyone understands that it is in everyone's best interest to let motorcycles go through. Just a couple of my thoughts. Anyway, you have provided some great listening over the years and hope for more to come. Thanks, Rory. Wow, this makes uh, driving in Texas sound dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I wish I, I don't know. I, I wish I knew more about uh, motorcycle culture and uh, motorcycle laws to really comment on all of this. I'm just taking, uh, you know, Rory uh, at their word here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the argument they make it makes sense to me both the, the the arguments for this lane filtering, but also some of the potential complications if if people are sort of engaging in that 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 car mentality of uh, of you know me versus everyone else. Something we mm-hmm. talked about a bit in last year's episode, uh, or maybe it was the year before last. I can't I can't recall. We did an episode one October about the uh, what happens to our consciousness in an automobile, mm-hmm. um, and we went into some of this. I think you know this reminds me that uh, I think I saw a bit of discussion in the stuff to blow your mind Facebook module. Um, about uh, about late merging. Remember we talked mm-hmm. in the episode yep. about how, despite how awful it looks and you hate the person who's merging late, technically uh, it would be much better if everybody used all the lanes available to them as long as they could and then you merge one at a time going through the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sometimes called the, the zipper method or, or late merging. There are multiple studies showing that this is better in, in many ways. It's more efficient. It uh, doesn't necessarily get the cars through faster, but it decreases the length of the backup on the road. And it is much safer to have the cars merging slowly in a predictable way, one at a time at the bottleneck, instead of trying to get in wherever they can. But people were, uh, were still reacting negatively to the idea of late merging. And I think a lot of that is based on the idea that when we see 
see people merging late, they're often zooming ahead to do so. Mm-hmm. So there's a line, you know, there are cars lined up in one lane and then somebody's ripping past them uh, down the, the rest of the open lane to try to get in quickly. I would still not recommend that behavior. I mean, what would be ideal is if people use all the lanes available to them as long as they can at a slow speed and then take turns merging one by one. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, yeah, and just also safer if, if nobody's like speeding ahead at a crazy pace. Now, the thing about zippering, though, is even when you end up in a zippering situation, there's still room for um, evil behavior as, yeah. uh, as you know, someone who doesn't quite understand how zippers work. Perhaps they've never used a zipper. Maybe they're a button person, and they think that occasionally two to three teeth uh, can go together on one side, that it doesn't need to be uh, uh, one per one to make the zipper work. Um, that's how you break your zipper buddy that's how you break your zipper it breaks the zipper it breaks the zipper for everyone um you know it's it's like someone at a four-way stop who thinks that well if one car is going through i can just if i'm close enough behind them then i can just go through we'll just be one car that's that's just fine rob i think what you don't understand about this person is they've got somewhere to be yes yeah they've their shows are on I, i realize they've they've got to get home i mean that's the thing everybody just gets in too too big of a hurry um out there on the road uh, they just need to need to chill chill a bit. T- take it take it down a notch, you know. Okay, I think we should finish up with a couple of messages about Weird House Cinema. This one comes from Stacy, and it's about Godzilla versus Hedera. <laughs> Stacy says, "Hi guys, I just watched Godzilla versus Hedera today with my husband, and one of the first things he said was." Wow, that was some disgusting-looking water, and I lolled. (laughs) I listened to the podcast, and I don't remember you mentioning the weird gestures that Godzilla and Hedera were trading, most notably the hand swiping across the mouth, followed by the wild forward arm chop. Godzilla did this move over and over again. We were cracking up. Did you notice this? What's that all about? Good episode and another great watch for me. Can't wait for more. Stacy. Uh, well, thanks, Stacy. Yes, I did notice all the gestures. I thought we sort of mentioned it, but it might have gone by very fast. We didn't dwell on it, certainly. But yes, there were like, um, I don't even know how to describe them. I mean, it wasn't just like the, the shoulder shrug and the eye rolling from Godzilla. But yeah, he was doing all these uh, like wrestling style gestures, I would guess. Yeah, they were straight up. I interpreted them as signature taunts, the kind of mm-hmm. signature taunts that you might use in a wrestling or fighting video game. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it, for me, it was like just clear what, what Godzilla was doing. Like he's saying, all right, let's do this. Let's throw down. I, and maybe, that, maybe there's actual a message there. Uh, you know, it's like, I will roast you with my breath. Mm-hmm. Come to me. This claw, this breath, uh, you have an appointment with doom. Right. It's like putting the hand to the ear and being like, I can't hear you. Or I don't know mm-hmm. what the Rob, you know, wrestling. What are the what are the main like gesture taunts? I mean, th- there are a whole slew of them. But, you know, yeah. that's definitely a big one. Uh, but but yeah, I think I think Godzilla is at, at the top of his game here. He he's he's letting Hedera know that okay. I've, I've got your number. Let's do this. Let's fight. All right. Uh, Rob, do you want to do this one about the, uh, oh, about the song? Yeah, yeah. I was excited to receive this one. Uh, this one comes to us from, let's see, from Jim. Jim. Yeah. Not, not Jim from New Jersey. Different Jim. Different one of the other, Jim. many other Jims. Hello, Robert and Joe. 
In the Weird House Cinema episode on Godzilla vs. Hedera, Rob mentioned that Guy Hemrick composed a song in English to take the place of Return the Sun in the Bond movie-esque opener of the dubbed version. Um, and, and again, uh, we, we have not seen the dubbed version, so I was just speculating here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob also guessed that the song wouldn't retain the strong environmental message of the Japanese original. I think you both might be excited to learn that this reasonable assumption is actually wrong. The English song is titled Save the Earth, and Adrian Russ apparently co-wrote the lyrics with Hemrick. If anything, it's even more on the nose with its environmental message, Whoa. consisting in large part of a chorus of Save the Earth to the same tune as Return the Sun. I think it's quite fun in its own right, and I enjoyed it when later in the movie, Godzilla and the Smog Monster are locked in battle to the music of Save the Earth. I quite enjoyed this episode, have been enjoying Weird House Cinema generally, and love this selection. Godzilla vs. Hedera is my favorite Godzilla movie, though I've yet to see Shin Godzilla, and will check it out. Thanks for the fun and thoughtful commentary. Best, Jim. Definitely do check out Shin Godzilla. Uh, But for reference, Jim attached a link to the uh, lyrics of both versions of the song, Rob. I've pasted them side by side for us to look at here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can definitely see uh, some of the fabulous different. Instead of saying, like, the the translated version of the original starts with, Islands, fish, where have you gone? Uh, But Save the Earth goes, animals, God's animals, don't go away, don't go. So, yes, it 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 comes out strong. Uh, So I'm, I'm, I'm relieved to be corrected on this. Just like looking at a factory pouring smoke into the air and saying, hey, those are God's animals. <laughs> the uh, the direct translation of the Japanese version certainly has way more listing of chemicals. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, some chemicals make it into the, the English uh, version. But uh, I also think it is interesting that they throw God in there right at the beginning. They throw in mm-hmm. a, a monotheistic um, Western deity right at the beginning of this, because I've, I've read, and I'm not an expert on this, but this is often a critique of, of particular uh, translations and, and dubbings of uh, Miyazaki's work, is you take you know, religious or quasi-religious models that are present in the film, and then in translating them for Western audiences, you take something that is maybe you know, more about like, communal spirits in nature, more like, more like Shinto-inspired, mm-hmm. and then you make it more uh, in line with a monotheistic view of God and nature, yeah. uh, which, I don't know, I guess that, you know, there's a huge argument to be made there It's in translation, right? Like, what are, how much are you trying to maintain of the original? How much are you trying to to literally translate it into a different worldview for a, a totally different audience. Uh, I don't know. Uh, different arguments on both sides, I'm sure. What's the deal with when we're moving, we're moving, moving to the moon now? I don't think that's in the original song. <laughs> we're moving, we're moving. We're, I don't know. Uh, moving yeah, to the moon. There was no moving to the moon that I remember in that one. But unless it's kind of a commentary on why are we focusing on the moon? We need to focus on Earth, you know, like sort of a oh, space, okay. space program critique or something. Uh, yeah, that would make sense. Well, the Guy Hemrick version does have the uh, the beautiful couplet and the solution, stop the pollution. Now that's inspired. That's good. That's right. Yeah. That rhymes and you know it rhymes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this edition of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail, but certainly keep them coming. We have more stuff that we didn't get to today that we'll, uh, we'll try and co- incorporate in future installments. But, you know, keep keep writing in about 
current episodes, past episodes, upcoming episodes, stuff to blow your mind, core episodes, as well as our artifacts, uh, as well as Weird House Cinema. We love all of your input. And, uh, you know, with the, with the Weird House Cinema, it's also nice to know, like, which which movie selections are are really landing with people the best, uh, you know, because it can partially inform where we go from here, you know? Totally. I mean, we're going to keep occasionally choosing films that most people have not seen or heard of, but uh, but but you know, I feel like we we we're, we're trying to to, uh, to to keep a mix of things where yeah, there are going to be some films that are easy to get or are more well known uh, versus films that are maybe a little more obscure and difficult to get a copy of. In the meantime, if you want to catch up on your episodes, you can find Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Normally, if we're not disrupting things a bit, you're going to find your core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursday. You're going to find Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, and Weird House Cinema on Friday. A little rerun on the weekend for you as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.